It's good to see you all. If I've met you, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1 again this week. This is our third week in this new series through the book of Daniel. Um, really going to stare at verse 8, but by God's grace, we'll get all the way to verse 16. Before we hear from God's word, though, let's, let's go to him in prayer together. Father, it is an incredible gift and privilege that that you who the highest heavens can't contain would speak to us. I pray that just the weightiness of that reality would settle on us. We have to-do lists. We have texts and emails that need to be responded to. We have laundry to fold. We have meals to plan. We have events to get to, we, we have conversations that need to take place, we have yard work to do, we got carpets to clean. There's so many things vying for our attention, but I ask that for the next 40 minutes or so, you would just grant us the, the reminder that you are sovereign over all things. And this world doesn't need our attention right now but that you would send your spirit to settle our our souls, to focus our minds as we prepare to be addressed by the great king through your word. And so so help our souls know how hungry they are apart from hearing from your word. And and God, in a world of of so many opinions and statements and and media and insights and and claims towards truth and, and and all the rest, God, we ask that you would speak with clarity to us do you grant us the ability to, to hear it? And, and, and above all those things, do you grant us the humility to bend our, our knees under the, the, the kind authority of your word, where we don't have to guess what's right or wrong. We just have to bow. Above all things, as we pray every single week as a church, what, what we need more than anything is, is not a... a, a, a tips and ideas on how to, to live better. God, we want those, or, or strategies for how to mend relationships. We, we're grateful for those, God. We, we, we are, but what we need more than anything else is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus Christ. It's our hero, is our savior, is our friend, is our shepherd, and is our returning king. Might you make him loud in this sermon? Might you make him loud in our songs, in our prayers, our conversations this afternoon as we go into this week? until we gather again as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I was in uh, high school, I was in a band. And during the the first service, it was fantastic. Pastor Ethan was sitting in the front, and he, he said it was a boy band. And it was a boy band. And I thank God from the bottom of my heart, every time I bring this up, because people try to find it, you can't find any record of it. This was pre-internet. This was pre-iPhone. So there's, there's no pictures and videos, but it was a really fun part of my life. It was really, really fun. I think it's why my wife ended up falling in love with me, is that I was in a boy band with like coordinated linen pants and like fake jewelry that we were borrowing. We even did some videos where we like rented fancy cars and kind of like walked around them. And it was just a fantastic part of being a 17-year-old. Senior year, 17, I'm going to a studio in Seattle to go uh, record, and it was late at night, going to show up there about 10 o'clock, and we we're going to record through the night, and it was just a blast. It was a really nice studio, incredible equipment, amazing engineers, and, 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 and my guys with me, and we're hanging out, and there's a bunch of people there we don't know, and we're doing this for a few hours and, and having a blast, and then all of a sudden, a smorgasbord of drugs began to get passed around. 17, senior in high school, in a room, I, people I didn't know, at least half of them, and as this gets passed around, I'd like to say that I had resolved myself to not partake. I hadn't. Now, clarify, I also didn't take anything, but it wasn't because I, I had drawn a line, it's because I was scared. 
I was, I was young, I was naive, I was frightened, I didn't know what the colors of the different pills meant, I, di- I didn't know what I was supposed to do, and so somehow uh, I just kind of dodged, and, and, and I hadn't thought about that moment much until this past week studying the text we're going to look at, how significant that moment was. Now, I don't want to dramatize it. The, you know, we are a room full of people that have made lots of different choices, and we're grateful for God who reorders our steps. Amen? But I look back on that moment, and what if I had said yes? What if I had gone a different direction? And I thank God that he helped me draw lines in a moment that I hadn't already really considered. I'm so grateful for that. But today's text is actually going to invite us to draw the lines before we think we need them. It's going to wake us up to, 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 to really one word that this passage is, is all is built around. It's the word resolved. So specifically today, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at why do we make resolutions? How can we keep resolutions? And then hang on till the end because we're going to end with just a huge gift from God that's going to really help us approach these resolutions differently. If able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Really cluing on verse 8 and to 16, but I'm going to start reading at verse 3 just to give us a little context of what's happening in this passage. This is God's holy, helpful, um, life-transforming word. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, Use without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature, the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. All right, feel free to grab a seat. Showed up to hear about vegetables. Um, start with this question. Why draw lines? There's a text about drawing lines. That's what verse 8 is talking about. Why, why draw lines? We see a really clear answer um, in verse 8 with uh, one word that's used twice, this word defiled. Defiled can mean to stain oneself, to, to become polluted, to become corrupted, has a sense of, of, of being split or, or derailed or distracted. The context of this and why we start up in verse 3, probably could have started up in verse 1, the super global power Babylon had just conquered um, Israel and Jerusalem. They come into Jerusalem, besieged it, and then the king, part of the strategy was to carry off some of the people that were there and to re-educate them. We see this with Daniel and his friends who were likely teenagers when this happened. They bring them back to, 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 to Babylon, kind of modern day Iraq, and they re-educate them. They're going to train them 
them in the Chaldean way of thinking and in this different worldview and this different way of understanding our place and who we are in the world and how to think and what's right and what's wrong. Going to do that for three years, rename them. Gives them, takes the, they had names about the God that they served and renamed them after different pagan gods. Trying to reprogram them. Really, we would say trying to corrupt them, trying to recast them. I don't remember where I heard this, but I mean, this reality of reprogramming happens all the time. Read about this, this pastor from the Midwest and and there was a, a young lady that was coming back to visit the church. She'd grown up in the church, spent her whole life in the church, had, had gone off to, to college and, and career and, and was back visiting family or friends and, and, and wanted lunch with this pastor that she grew up listening to and sat down with him. And, and they just began to talk and tell stories and kind of catch up. And then at some point in the conversation, got to the spot where I said, you know, the stuff that I grew up with, some of the stuff that we, we said, I don't know, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that anymore. Some of the, some of the things that, that, that we as the church used to say, this, this is sin, and this is harmful to us. I don't think it's sin anymore, and I don't think it's harmful to us. And the pastor asked, a, I believe, a really insightful question. And in the story, this person references something specific, but you could insert it with whatever you want. The pastor asked this really important question, said, what changed first, your theology or your lifestyle? Or what changed first, your theology or pressure from your friends? What changed first, your theology or pressure from the culture to believe something different than you've always held to be true? It's a great question. It's one we probably should ask all the time as we, we live in a host culture. I mean, that's the story of Daniel, that, 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 that you're here, but this really isn't supposed to be your home, that you're dual citizens, you're citizens here or whatever nation you come from, but, but if you're a follower of Christ, you're, you're, you're most rightly citizens of heaven, that you might be under kings and leaders and rulers here, but really you're under King Jesus, one of the questions we ask is, why, why draw the line here? He doesn't want to be defiled, okay? He doesn't want to be corrupted, okay? But why draw the line here? Daniel, he didn't draw the line at, at being renamed. He didn't draw the line at being educated according to the culture's values. Him and his friends, if you read through Daniel, they're not obnoxious. They're hard workers. They're prayerful. They're thoughtful. They're, they're not picking every fight everywhere they possibly could. And so Daniel chooses to draw the line here. Why? If, you, if you've ever heard this text preached on, you've studied this text, you've gone to commentaries on this text, what you'll find is a lot of different answers to that question of why. It could be things like, well, the food wasn't, it wasn't kosher. It didn't square with the, the dietary restrictions of God's people, the food from the king's table or the, the wine from the king's table. I think part of the problem with that, though, is that the, the, the wine itself was never prohibited by God. And actually, later on in the book of Daniel, I think in chapter 10, it looks like Daniel and his friends are actually eating meat and drinking wine. So, so may, maybe that plays into it, but, but there, there's some reasons it may not. Maybe it's this, that the food and the wine were offered to pagan gods prior to being brought to Daniel and his friends. That whatever was, was going to be eaten or consumed would first be given as tribute to, to, a, to, a, to a foreign deity, and they didn't want to be complicit in, in that. The problem with that is that the vegetables would have been, too. Everything would have been attributed to a god of, in this pantheon of Babylonian gods would have gone to one of them. Some people, I think all these have maybe potential impacts. Some would say, well, this is the food from the king's table. This is the, the drink from the king's table. The, 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 there's, a, there's a real intentionality with this text to try to say, this is who's providing this for you. And maybe they didn't want to be beholden to the king, that he's the one that provided this lifestyle for them. But the vegetables would have come from the king as well. And so I will offer to you this answer to why draw the line here. I do not know. Don't know. But I do know this. I know the big reason he did it. Whatever the specific motivation, I know the big motivation is this. He didn't want to be defiled. It's in the text. He wanted to maintain his unique identity as a person of God in a culture that did not love his God. This text in, with, um, 
a bunch of people this last week to try to get just insights and, and, and perspectives on this text. And, and so one of the people I texted was uh, my oldest daughter, Emma, who's first year at Wazoo this year. Um, and I just texted her. I said, hey, honey, why make resolutions to not be defiled? So that, that was the text. It was like 8, 8 o'clock in the morning, Thursday morning. Hey, honey, don't get defiled, right? It's just, it's, it's just pastor dad text. That's how we, how we do it. And her response, though, was just fantastic. We want to live distinctively from culture, right? And part of that is not consuming all the stuff culture throws at us. We've been set apart. We might as well live like it. It's a good insight. That's, that's what was motivating Daniel. He's like, I've been set apart for God, and I, and I recognize in this host culture, there's going to be things that I can enjoy and benefit from, but there's other things that I really can't because they're going to they're gonna corrupt me in a way that, I, that, that I'll lose my unique identity as a person of God. We face the same pressures all the time. Whether that's at Wazoo, whether that's at Western, whether that's at Bellingham High School, whether that's at Linden Christian, whether that's when, when, when you go off to work, whether you're working retail or in business, whether you go on vacations, it's always happening. We're always being pressed to, to, to have this challenge and this dance and this tension between living as God's people and God's world, but a world that often has gone wrong. We have clarity for a vision like this in places like Romans, another part of your Bibles, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Just listen to these words, this, this invitation. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ here, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Daniel saw a desire to not get defiled as an expression of his worship to the true God. And it goes on, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what Daniel was doing. When, the, when this food was offered, whatever it was going to do was going to compromise his walk in such a way, he says, I can't do it. I got to draw the line. David Wells, in his book, God in the World, one says it like this. He says, being transformed also means being unconformed. Being transformed also means being unconformed. There are going to be distinctions and differences. And if you're a Christ follower in what you believe and how you recreate and what you watch and consume and, and how you do it and what motivates you and, and how you live and how you steward your money and how you steward your time and the purpose of the use of your gifts and all of those things, are gonna, there's going to be areas of distinction. Oh, goodness, there will be areas of overlap with the culture in which you find yourself because of the common good grace of God. But there are going to be places where you draw a line. I'll give you a couple examples. Jeremy Lindman, in his book, Before You Lose Your Faith, him, him and along with a number of other authors, um, says this, much of American Christianity, he's just focused on American Christianity, has flowed with mainstream culture and promoting personal autonomy, rugged individualism, and consumer culture. Historic Christianity teaches that true belonging is found in being fully known and fully loved by God and others. Yet American Christianity often follows secularism's vision of the good life through production and consumption. You can't live in the host culture without having these things influence. And so the question is, what are you going to do with them? And we could, we could take that quote and just maybe reference Christ who said, you got to watch out for the riches and the pleasures and the cares of this world because they will choke the fruit from coming to maturity. There are things that can derail us. Oftentimes, very good things. David Wells used this quote last week. I just think it's a beast of a quote um, from his book, uh, Losing Our Virtue. Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. And read that again. It makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. 
When we step over those lines, we're eating food from the king's table. We're drinking from his cup. And that's what Daniel was trying to avoid, is he didn't want in a culture that recasts and redefines what is sinful and harmful and dishonoring to God and, 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 and harmful for your neighbors, as he wanted to be aware of that. Now, this verse, it gives a really stark reason to, to resist, to resolve. It says so that you're not defiled. It's kind of a negative, so this bad thing doesn't happen. But the rest of the book of Daniel is actually an exceedingly positive portrait of what happens when you springboard from this verse. Everything that happens in Daniel flows from verse 8. This decision to live for God in a world that doesn't love God. All of the beautiful things that happen in Daniel flow from that. In a text that seems like it's about fasting, it's really about flourishing. The reality is that the things of this world that defile us, they're also the things that shrink us. And God wants to help us avoid those things. He wants to invite us to a way of living that's truly living. That's why Christ said, I came to give life and to give it to abundance. It's being a Christ follower is not an invitation towards deprivation, but actually rejoicing and worshiping and flourishing. I was thinking about this morning as I showed up to service today, and it's just, it's been so windy, and, and I remember where I heard this illustration the first time, but, but just like the, the story was this, this like allegorical telling of a kite. It's talking about a kite, and this kite is, it's soaring up in, in the clouds, and, and, and it's sitting there, and it's just enjoying the breeze, and it's floating around, and it has this incredible perspective over, over the world, and, and, it's, and it, it's, it's totally content and totally happy. But then it looks, and it sees these birds flying around. Sees these birds that are flying higher and further and, and going wherever they want and, 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 and doing spins and loops and diving down to the ground and soaring back up into the sky. It says, oh, if I could be free like that, that'd be so much better. But I have this stupid string attached to me. And I got this stupid person holding it. If I could ever break free from the string, oh, that would be life. That would be life to me. But anyone here who's ever flown a kite, what happens when the string breaks loose? What happens when you let go of that string? Imagine that wind for a second, it just, it lifts the, the, the kite further, says, now I'm finally free, but what's going to happen with no tension on the rope, with nothing to hold it tethered to the ground, that, that kite's going to flip around and then crash into the ground? God, when he gives us his word when he gives us his precepts, when he gives us his teaching, when he gives us his law, when he gives us his instruction, which 1 John 5 tells us his commands are not burdensome. What he's saying is, I know how you work best, and there's things that are going to corrupt you. A number of years ago, I came across a book called Living Forward, um, written by Michael Hyatt, and, and I, I keep forgetting the, the name of the other author, but it's, it's basically a way of strategically and intentionally thinking about where do you want to get and how that, that picture of where you want to get, being intentional about it, really impacts the decisions you make in the here and now. And, and it's got tons, you do tons of resolutions, tons of auditing, tons of self-reflection, all sorts of stuff. But, but one of the things I found most helpful about walking through the development of what he would call a life plan is it begins with you write a eulogy. It sounds depressing, but it's actually incredibly invigorating. He says, sit down and write your eulogy. Write the thing that you want said when you go out of the game. You live whatever years the Lord has given to you. What do you want people to stand around and say and remember? This is just incredibly helpful. And one of the things you're supposed to do with this life plan is you constantly read through it. So I'm constantly reading through my eulogy. And, and as I read through it, I, I just say, like, that's by God's grace, the things that I want to do and become, like I want to be married to my wife for at least 80 years. And partly I was like manipulating God because that means I get to live to be 100 and something, right? So it's like I got things like that and I got to baptize my great, great, great grandson. Again, trying to kind of like sneak those in, like, God, oh, that sounds pretty godly, right? So give me long life and health. But, it, but, but really what it represents are all these things that it's like, this is who I want to be, fully alive to God and by his power of the Spirit. But there is a never-ending series of things that can derail. And you. And you. And so into that, God gives us a text like this. Says, Resolve yourselves to not be defiled in the host culture in which you live. This why 
it's, 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 it's loud, um, but how? You know, how, do, how do we do this? How do we do this? So I'll, give you, I'll give you two handles and we'll unpack them together. Um, first, you got to make the right resolutions. Second, you got to keep the right resolutions. So you got to make the right resolutions. You need to keep the right resolutions. We see this in, in verse 8. Again, we're just going to really camp out in that verse. I was texting some friends uh, again this last week, another group of buddies, and I, I just said, hey, hey guys, how you doing? Any resolutions you guys have made to not defile yourself? You know, I just think again, like how awkward that's, no one's ever sent me a text like that. But that's typically what I was, have you guys defiled yourselves this week? I'm all ears. Um, so I text him this and uh, got a number of great responses. And one guy said this, he said, yeah, man, actually I, I have. And then he posted, he had 29 resolutions that he'd written, 29. And then he said, but honestly, I haven't looked at them in like three plus years. So maybe this will rejuvenate me to revisit them. Another buddy said, I do not but maybe after Sunday, I will. Um, in reality, the friend that said, you know, I don't have any of these. He's a godly man who's drawn lots of lines in his life. He loves Jesus. He loves you. I just want you to know is his church. He just is very committed. Um, but what I think he was saying is I just don't have any that are specifically written down, even though he's living his life according to a bunch of them. And here's the point. Whether you have one or a hundred or no resolutions, whether you reflect on them daily or you haven't looked at them in a while, what an incredible opportunity today to think about them. So this text is doing for us. Alistair Begg, in his book, Brave by Faith, says it like this. We are in Babylon, and God is sovereign even here. That's a great, it'd be good just to camp out in that line. In the midst of all the confusion and chaos and worry and question marks we're in Babylon, but God is sovereign even here. He goes on, nothing is actually out of control, and nothing is about to get out of control. But given the pushback of 21st century secularism, you and I are going to face challenges. The crises will come. The moments will arrive when we are called to go with the flow of our culture rather than obedience to our God in the workplace or the sports club or in how we raise our children or what we say from our pulpits, and so on. Those crises will reveal what is inside us. Don't assume you'll stand firm in those moments. But I love this. I love this next line. Equally, don't assume you will have to give in. Resolve now. Now, some of you go like, the times are coming. You're like, they're already here. I've already been in this. I've, uh, like, uh, I'm feeling this. I feel this. And the invitation is the same. Resolve now. That's the invitation of this text, this beautiful word resolve that shows up once, but it's actually two different words in, in, in the original language. One of the words is a noun, and one of the words for resolve is, is a verb. And we put these together, and we get, get this sense of, of, of like to fix, to define, to determine, to, to have character. This word actually includes things like you, you set your heart and your mind and your body towards a, a purpose. The, the, there's the word courage that gets attached. This is a beautiful word that includes so many different aspects. It's like one's inner sense. It means I'm going to be true to who I am. So Daniel is saying, he says, I resolved myself. He says, I'm going to be true to who I know that I am. I'm going to live right in a wrong world. One translator uh, translated like this says, Daniel, he purposed in his heart. It's an intentionality to live here in a certain sort of way. So we want to make resolutions. We want to make them. We want to say, I'm going to be resolved. But we, want to do, we want to make the right ones, though. We want to make the right ones. We don't want to draw lines everywhere. As I said, Daniel and his friends weren't trying to be obnoxious. They weren't trying to be annoying in the culture. They weren't trying to make mountains out of molehills. They weren't picking fights everywhere. They weren't doing that. If you read through Daniel, you actually see incredible servants to the glory of God, but the good of their culture. But they did still draw lines. And so, so part of this requires wisdom and skill and time. We want to make the right resolutions. Where do we draw them? What lines? What do I say yes to? What do I say no to? Let me give you one resolution that really influences all of them. And it's from this text. So there's lots of ways this would work out. But one resolution that influences all of them is take the one that I resolve to not defile myself. If you want to say it positively, I resolve to live for Jesus. I resolve to live for God in the midst of a world that doesn't. Everything will flow from that. Everything will flow from that. I've been watching this, um, this TV show called Homestead Rescue. Um, anyone else watch Homestead Rescue? 
One. Perfect. I like to find illustrations. When you're taking preaching classes, I say, make sure to use illustrations that relate to lots of people in the room. So I try to find the ones that one person has watched. In the first service, there was two. So you and me, you're, yeah, we'll, we'll just be here, Royce. We'll be here. Um, Homestead Rescue is the story of the, the Rainey family, this family from Alaska, this guy Marty Rainey, kind of patriarch of the family. They'll show up. Someone in the nation somewhere will have said, I'm buying a homestead. I'm getting off the grid. We're not doing this anymore. They move out in the middle of nowhere. They start, and then they realize they can't do it. So they reach out for help, and they, they call the Rainies, please come and help us. And so the Rainies come in for a week to try to like save the homestead. Marty Rainey, this guy's great great mustache, always wears a tuxedo shirt. I don't know why, I don't know why he wears a tuxedo shirt tucked into his way too tight jeans and his giant hat. And he just shows up on the scene to save the homestead. There is one thing, though, in every homestead is the most important thing to, to, to make anything good happen, anything at all. There's one thing that's absolutely necessary, and you can't answer it since you watched the show, but everyone else is invited to two cookies if you have the answer. So what is most important in any homestead so that it might survive? What do you think is most important? Clean water. It's everything. Who gets three cookies because it was said so clearly. Three cookies. Three cookies. Clean water. It's everything. It's everything. I was watching one last night. That's what my wife and I do on Saturday nights. We watch Homestead Rescue. Very romantic. And uh, they found on, on this homestead, they found a spring of water. Dug into the dirt. Got through the, the rubble and all of a sudden water. And they said, this is better than gold. And the reason is, is that everything flows downstream. Everything happens downstream from life-giving water. Everything flows from you. The ability to feed the livestock and to water the, the plants and, and to wash your clothes and to do the dishes. Everything flows from having this water. I would suggest to you that the resolution given to you from verse 8 is like water. All of life flows from it. Making the resolve to say, I'm going to live for Christ. Whatever comes. And then to recognize that when you make that resolution, all the other, re there's a million resolutions that might flow from it, but you got to make that one. For example, when I got married, I made a resolution of sorts. I said, I'm going to love and commit to my wife as long as he gives me breath. Now, from that, there's a million other little things, big things, small things, medium things that I have done to try to support that one resolution. But from that one resolution is determined everything else about the way that I live. That's what this text is saying. Resolve now. Resolve now. Let me give you a couple of practical handles, though. Because um, with that said, with this overarching resolution, it's going to work out into specifics. We actually see it in this text. Daniel resolved himself, but it doesn't end there. It says he resolved himself to not defile himself with the king's food. It, it wasn't just resolved to not be defiled. He actually, there were some specifics that worked out for him at that particular time and place, and it's the same thing for us. So let me give you three handles really, really quickly. Um, first service went long. This one looks like it's going to go long. As I was setting my timer and I pressed start at the beginning of this, I was like, who's kidding? I feel like it's just mocking me now as it's counting down. But here we go. I'll try to do this quickly. Um, start with this one. What does the Bible say? This gives you clarity and authority in the midst of a really confusing world. The Bible says no, we get to say no. We don't have to wonder why. We just trust. It's like the kite on a string. God is trying to help you soar without wrecking everything. So what does the Bible say in all the, the, the different ideologies, all the competing systems of truth and, and confusion? And What does the Bible say? I just want to sit beneath the word of God. God never misspeaks. His word is, is always good, always right, always helpful. Now, we don't always understand it, and that requires work, and we don't always apply it right, and that requires work and, and time and patience, but I just want to posture myself of I'm not going to get, I just want to sit underneath the word of God and do what it says and not do what it says not to do. What does the church say? And when I say that, I don't mean like just redeemer. 
And I actually probably mean more, what does the historical church say? And what does the global church say? Because we're in a host culture. And as we're in this culture, it's really hard to see your blind spots. It's really hard to see where you've been maybe co-opted in a way of thinking. You know, I referenced a quote about kind of like American consumerism and rugged individualism and all that seems so contrary to the Word of God, but it's hard to even know it because we've been swimming in it for so long. And so one of the most helpful places to go, like, do I need to draw a line there? Is to look at the, the, the global church or look at the historical church. You know, I don't want to just say, what does it look like to draw a line as a Christian in 2021? I say, what did Christians do in 57? In 1322? In 1784? Now, it doesn't mean they're always right, but, but I at least want to consider if the church has believed something for 2,000 years, I better be really slow to jettison that simply because my culture says it's offensive now. And so I want to go to the Bible. Is it, is it an authority? You're going to have to decide. All of us are going to have an ultimate authority in our lives. So you got to choose. Is that, is that going to be the Word of God or something else? I want to go to the church, my, my community that's right around me, but I also want to think the historical church and really listen to the wisdom of God's people over the ages. And then I do want to look at my own conscience. As I'm drawing lines and trying to figure out where these goes, I want, I want to know myself. I want to know my own vulnerabilities. I want to know my own habits. I want to know my own behaviors. I want to submit everything under the Bible. I want to listen to church history, but I want to be honest with myself. Um, I enjoy sin. Amen? You're like, you don't want to say amen. I, I do. I enjoy sin. I hate that I do, but I enjoy sin. But there are certain sins that I enjoy more than others. So part of wisdom for me in drawing lines is being honest with myself about where those things are. Because my lines might be different than yours because of my own weaknesses, because of my own experiences, because of my own predilections towards sin. That maybe for you, it's, it's not a struggle in the same way. But for me, I want to be honest about who I am before the Lord and my historical failures and where I've dropped the ball so that I can be, be thoughtful about what I draw so I don't get defiled and derailed and discipled by this culture. One of my buddies, you know, back to this series of texts, here's one of his. I don't drink alcohol alone. I don't want it to be part of my everyday life, and this rule is a pretty simple to help it not creep in all the time. That's a resolution that he's made with himself, and I don't know, I think he's had it for like 14 years. And now, he's not giving you law. He's not saying his resolution should be your resolution. He's just trying to be aware of who he is and, and, and just wanting to guard against something that he enjoys becoming something that thins him out, and enslaves him. You know, you apply this a ton of ways. You know, what things in the world are attractive to you but might impair you from the Lord and his mission and witness? I'll, I'll personalize this. Where might my desire for certain types of reputation cause me to compromise? Like when I think about people in our culture, who do I, who do I want to, to, to make sure they, they don't think of me as ignorant or foolish or bigoted or whatever other accusation might be thrown at me as trying to be faithful to the Word of God. And realize in those places, it's probably I'm pretty tempted to compromise. What shifts in culture are happening that are making it hard for me not to compromise? I mean, think of the questions that you're trying to solve right now that weren't even on your radar screen like seven years ago. Those are, those are tricky moments. Where have I historically stepped over the line and what do I need to avoid? So we need to make the right resolutions. I will hit the gas pedal on this and try to speed this up a little bit. Um, we got to keep the right resolutions though. Making them is one thing and there is a challenge in that, but keeping them is another thing and there is a challenge in that as well. Wednesday morning as everyone in my house was leaving for school or work, I quoted Daniel 1.8. I, said, I just said, everyone hold on before you leave. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. My wife just goes, great. <laughs> Thanks for the send-off. Um, but, but she just goes, living resolved is hard. And it is. It's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. Let's look at a few things that can help. Um, I'll, do these, I'll do these reasonably quickly. Um, here's what can help if you're going to live this way. Know your why. Like, know your why. Daniel did this for a reason. One of my favorite... Um, 
books on spiritual disciplines is a book by a guy named Donald Whitney, and it's because every single time he talks about a spiritual discipline, he tethers it to the purpose. He says, we do solitude for the purpose of godliness. We read our Bibles for the purpose of godliness. We serve others for the purpose of godliness. He, and he starts with a beautiful illustration that I won't go into now in the beginning of the book, but he just says, this is you fully alive to God. So everything we're doing is for the purpose of, so know your why. When you say no to something, you say yes to something, keep your why really, really loud. Again, I would just invite you, write a eulogy. Write a eulogy. Write that picture of what you long for. Lay it before the Lord under his word. Make your why really loud. Um, so know your why. Make up your mind. We all know what it's like to kind of like half resolve, kind of half going. And we see it, the, 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 the temptation here in Daniel. I mean, this is the following verses. I mean, I guarantee the foods, the, the king's food and wine were better than the vegetables. So there have been a countless, never-ending list of reasons to go back on this resolution. We also have the, 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 the danger in this dynamic. You know, Daniel goes to the, the eunuch, the one that was put in charge, the chief of the eunuchs, who was put in charge of them, and he has to go and appeal to him. And, and we see this in, in verse 10 here, and the chief eunuch said that, I fear my lord, the king, who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are worse conditioned than you who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He's saying, I might die if I let you try to follow this. There's so many reasons for Daniel just to pull back and say, maybe we'll do it another way. But what he does is he actually goes to then the second in command, and he, and he appeals to somebody else. He doesn't just give up on it. He tries, he tries another angle, and he, and he goes and says, okay, well, here, let's do this. Test us. Test us for 10 days. I mean, Daniel is resolved. He has made up his mind to be true to himself. There's this two-year study on New Year's resolutions, and it said at the end of a week, 75% of people were still doing them, but at the end of two years, only like 18%. Resolve. Resolve, whatever it costs, to live for Christ. I promise you it will cost less. Have your people. Um, have your people. I don't know what came first here. Was it Daniel? Was it said like, okay, this is the resolution I'm making. They grabbed his buddies and he says, okay, would you do this with me? I don't know if it was Azariah said, hey, I really think we shouldn't touch that stuff. And, and he's the one that influenced him. I don't know who led the way. I just know that they all committed together. We see that it's these four committed with one another to actually resolve to, to honor the Lord. And I think it's why you have things like take fitness goals. It's like if you say like, I really want to achieve something in fitness. It's why it's so recommended. Go find a group challenge to do this with because the chances of success are so much higher. It's why God gives you a local church. A buddy texted um, in, in, a, in a little group text I'm in, one of our good friends, he just said, hey guys, this thing just came up at work. I won't give you the specific situation, but he said, I'm being asked to participate in something that I just don't know if I can. I don't know what to do. That man of integrity, loves the Bible, loves Jesus, but loves the people he works with too. And he says, I, I, I'm really, I'm in this weird this is a tension for me because I don't know what it looks like to honor God here, to be faithful to his word, including things like to love my neighbor and to be a good witness and to be salt and light. And him texting us, what was more important, instead of coming to the, the solution, it was that he invited a community of people to pray with him and to ask questions and to try to sniff out motivations, whether godly or not. And that's part of like when you have your people, you get your group. I mean, you take your eulogy and then share it with a group of people and say, this is what I long for. Before God, by his grace, would you, would you help me? You know, when he texts us, a lot of it is like, man, we're, I think there's helpful things that can happen, but a big thing that it does, it just normalizes the tension. You get around other people that say, you know what, this is, this is kind of hard. I've probably heard more feedback as, you know, we're three weeks into this series, um, but more feedback in the last three weeks than probably any series we've done before because I think many of us in this room are feeling these tensions. Kind of like, man, it just feels like all of a sudden I feel like I've been relocated to a whole new place with a different idea. I don't know what to do, but I just want to love Jesus. I want to love my neighbors. I don't know what that looks like. One of the great things is we just name it with one another. And then we say, by God's grace, let's figure out what to do. And that's the last one. So know your why, um, know your why, make up your mind, have your people, but run to God. Run to God. You know, up to this point, the fear with the pacing of the sermon and the trajectory of this sermon is that a lot of this kind of feels like self-help. Like, okay, I want to make goals, I want to achieve goals, I want to do goals, I'm going to work hard at it, I'm going to do these things. 
But that's not where this text goes. That's not where this book goes. And I pray it's not where we go. We see God's intervention throughout. Um, there's, there's a lot going on here more than willpower. When I think about resolutions, one of the people I think about a lot is Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian and thinker, has some terrible things in his life and some really wonderful contributions to Christianity. But one of the things he did is he was known for making resolutions. He started making them when he was a teenager like Daniel. By the time he was 20, he had 70 resolutions that he had written. I encourage you, go Google Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Some of them are really, really, really good. But here's what I like most about his resolutions, the preface the beginning, the thing that flies over the top of them, and it's this. He said this, he goes, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So I can't do this, but God can we see this in, in verse 9, where God gives favor and compassion. We see it in the result of the test, right? The Daniel diet doesn't work. It doesn't work. He got fatter. He got fatter. Who gets fatter with vegetables? Like, well, he put enough butter on him, right? But he didn't have butter. He didn't have butter. He got fatter. The, the whole point of that is that God, God intervened with a miracle. You get into verse 17, which we'll look at next week, that God gave Daniel his friends understanding. You look at the presence of, of Christ in Daniel 3 in the fire with this other figure. We look at Dan, in Daniel 6 as God closes the, lion, the mouth of the lions so they can't attack. I mean, it's all through the book as God is helping. And God will help you. And God will help me with their resolutions. Our situation is different than Daniel, but our God isn't. The unchanging God will be there for us in whatever situation. Someone said this at the, um, we pray before the first service, we're gathered in the next room, just to pray over the morning, pray for other churches, pray for a bunch of different stuff, and, and shared the story, uh, uh, st- shared this reference to Bono. And, and if you know anything about Bono, I mean, a really amazing musician, been, been influential since like the early 80s, um, which is incredible how long his career is. But one of the things that happened is he really used his platform to try to, to seek and care for, for the marginalized in our culture. I think it's very admirable what he's done and used his platform well. And he's done all these benefit concerts. He's raised millions of dollars and, and tons of awareness towards a lot of different causes. And he, he, after all of this time, he, he made this interesting comment that he's learned over the years. He says, you know what? The, all that stuff is great, but, but give me 15 minutes with a senator and I can get way more done. And what he was saying is you get time with the right person that can move mountains and stuff changes. And then we began to pray. And I started thinking about that with this text. We get more than a senator. We get more than someone who can remove obstacles. We get, we get more than someone that can even move mountains. We get the one that spoke the mountains into existence. That's the one that we get to go to in the midst of our resolutions. And, and we can say, I can't, but you can. I'm unable, but you are, are, are able to conquer death. That, that I, I, I like to sin, but God is able to, to put to death that parts of us to make us alive to God. I'm confused. I don't know where to draw the line. I don't know what it's going to cost me. I don't know if I'm going to have the courage, but God is there. And a text like this reminds us of that, and a study like this reminds us of that as we carry this in, that we live right in a wrong world by the help of our great God. That's good news. But there's one more thing. Where do we turn when we don't keep the line? Where do we go when we give up? Where do we go when we succumb? Where do we go when we get polluted? Where do we go when we're corrupted? Where do we go? Oh, the answer is where all this points to, to the one who never gave up and the one who never crossed the line. Let me offer to you, um, those in the room, followers of Christ, you're trying to live for Jesus, confused, wandering, just, just really turned around with past and futures and disappointments of, of the times that you didn't say no and you wish you had. Let me read some words over you, and I pray these would be balm to your souls. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was confronted with all the lines. He had all the opportunities to, to step over them and ignore the, the resolutions, and, but, but he never did. He never fell one time. This last week I was in Matthew in my devotional time in this account of Christ's life. In Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus is out in the wilderness, he's been fasting and praying for 40 days, and the evil one comes to him. And he says, you could take this stone and you could make it bread. He says, I will not eat your bread. And then he takes Christ up on the side of a high hill and he says, I want you to look out and see all the kingdoms of the earth. All these can be yours. If you just bow to me. Christ stands firm. See, Christ passed the test that we often fail. Christ said, I'm not going to eat your bread. And the only cup I'm going to drink is the cup that the Father gives me, which is the cup of the cross. What I'm going to do is live my life fully resolved to follow God and to live for God, that I might come and seek and save the lost. All those, including those in this room, they get derailed and distracted and confused and do the things that they wish they had never done and compromised in so many ways. Christ Jesus is going to toe the line for us, and then he's going to go on a cross to die for all those that would trust in him. That in our defilement, we might be cleansed. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. And that's what we carry into our resolutions. Nothing short than the very grace of God, the ultimate help of God to give us Christ himself. Jesus held the line. Jesus resolved and never looked back in his obedience, not ours. Not ours is where we find true life. Dane Ortland, gentle and lowly, and I'll close with this, says this, it is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Above all the resolutions, resolve to know that grace, blood-bought, truth. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, the rest you give us does not depend on circumstances, people, or anything changing, including us. In you, we are forgiven, we are righteous, we are beloved. By you, we have present peace an eternal perspective, and a glorious forever. Make these priceless gifts palpably real and powerfully encouraging to us throughout the rest of this day and into this week. In your precious name we pray, amen.